Oh, welcome. Is everybody comfortable? I was kind of hoping somebody would plump themselves on that illustrious <laughs> throne over there. <laughs> um, if at any point uh, you don't hear me distinctly, if my voice is not carrying, please let me know. I'll speak a little louder. I also invite any of you, if you wish, to come closer. Um, there's no need for any distance here today. I am so grateful to be here. As Chris mentioned, it's over three years since I was last here, and I never ever thought it would be possible to return. So it's really for me a dream come true to be back with you today, and I join him in welcoming you. Uh, this place and the Insight Meditation Society up on the hill are my geographical spiritual homes, these places I feel are where I truly began to grow up for the first time. So I feel honored and privileged to serve here. And how precious it is, this opportunity that we have to be here together today. I'm sure there are some that might look at our mission, our purpose, our vision for the day, our reason for coming here as a, being a rather gloomy, morbid, or depressing one. I see it as really something altogether different. I fully intend as much as possible to have great mischief and hopefully some <laughs> fun together here too. And if there isn't some measure of that, I think that uh, uh, I will consider the day not completely well spent. <laughs> For me, I, I really see this as a further opportunity personally to step more deeply into life beyond the grip of fear and the illusion of mortality that still does grip my imagination so strongly from time to time. Today is an opportunity for me to unfurl my wings a little more and spread them hopefully wider and unshackle the chains of, of fear that have really kept me grounded for way, way too long. Death, of course, is going to occur for all of us. That seems pretty clear and certain. And if we live our lives in a way that makes that death an enemy, then we're setting ourselves up for failure. And what a harsh and vicious self-crucifixion that would be. And it seems to me that as thinking and sensitive and concerned people as we are gathered here today, we must come into deeper and deeper accommodation with the fact of our mortality. And the only question really is, how on earth are we going to do that? And so today we have an opportunity to explore that and hopefully do it together a little to some extent. A little warm, I'm a little nervous. <laughs> so, personally for me, 
I meditate and have been doing that now for 18 or 19 years. I do that simply to live a better life. And I feel increasingly as the years go by that by embracing life as fully as I can, I am at the self-same time engaging the issue of my dying. I aspire to live as deeply, as joyfully as possible, with as much peace and as much ease as I can muster, and with an openness to what is true, as much as possible. And I've come to see increasingly that to live fully, I must accept that death is a part of my life, as much as life is a part of my dying. And I feel that how I live my life, if I may say, how we live our lives, is really in the end the ultimate determinant of how it is that we're going to die. How we live is how we're going to die. And our relationship with our bodies seems to me to be the central issue in this question that we all bring today. We must somehow make peace with the truth of our bodies, whatever, it's, whatever state it's in, and not let our minds be imprisoned within the body. And if you're anything like me, I can be so imprisoned by the thoughts and the fear of old age, of sickness, and of death that seem at times so certain, so sure, non-negotiable and imminent. And how is it that we can relate to these truths of life without allowing our minds and our hearts to deteriorate along with our bodies? The Buddha said again and again that having been born, we are sure to die. And that he said it was a ludicrous thing seeing all these people weeping and wailing when someone had passed away. He said they should rather have saved their tears and spent them when that person was born. When we're born, our death is immediately assured. And he said too that our body is not the thing that creates suffering. It's really our relationship with the body that is the issue. And so I feel personally that meditation must be about healing our relationship with our bodies. And that is a healing into life and at the same time I believe a healing into death. And so in meditation, by opening to the truths of our body and opening to the truths and deepening the healing of our relationship with that body, we are at the same time preparing ourselves for whatever it is that lays ahead in terms of our dying. So it seems that how we love now is how we're going to die. And the question for me that I believe I ask myself every day in some way is how do I, how do we live fully now until we die? Or do we choose to rather die a little every day in a stranglehold of a fear of death. It seems like such a ludicrous notion 
to postpone life until we die. If we die a little each day to, to the hours, to the moments, to those days, to the months, to the years, I believe that we open then to life in all its vivid and immediate glory. And this letting go is the heart of meditation. It's the core of the Buddha's teaching. And I believe it's the essence of, the, of a happy life. So the question that I bring myself today is, can we today in life open to the evidence of life in death and death in life together? It seems propitious and rather perfect that this retreat, this day together was scheduled uh, as the autumn begins to embrace and unfold around us. There's so much organic matter out there in the blazing woods that is dead and dying and providing life for the next cycle of renewal and growth. The dead leaves, the twigs, the carcasses, the insects, the flowers, they lie everywhere, irrefutable evidence of the terminal life that is happening all around us. The green leaves of spring are turning golden and are beginning to fall and will soon rot, providing the compost and the humus for next spring and the awakening of nature once more. And soon the frost will come and gone will be the summer flowers. I picked these flowers out of my garden this morning and shortly soon they'll, they'll all be gone. The grass fleas will be gone too and the mosquitoes, the bacteria, the viruses, the pollen that haunts some of us and the mushrooms, the spiders, will all be gone. In flight already, as you've probably seen, are the Canadian geese and the starlings and the robins and even the hummingbirds have already said goodbye and headed south. Gone into seclusion soon will be the bears and the groundhog and the squirrels for the, for the deep cold of winter. All cycles turning and ending, birth and death, relentless everywhere around us, the evidence seems irrefutable. If only we could open our eyes to the lessons of nature around us, far more eloquent and immediate that, than any words that could be said in this hall here together today. All this change happening relentlessly and unceasingly. Can we become so deeply and so sensitively healed together that we can open and be healed by all this dying that surrounds us and the dying that awaits us all at the same time, interconnected and indivisible. Can we live a life in <coughs> death now, together, here today and always? And as I said, how precious is this day that we've gifted ourselves to be together. 
to look at this one single issue that really unites and equalizes us all. Irrespective of the context of our lives, the size of our bank accounts, our sex, our sexuality, our age, there is one fact of cause that underlies and is there for all of us. It informs us all, it terrifies us all at times, and I believe it promises us all, ultimately, that peace which passeth all understanding, which is our birthright. If we could only seize its promise and possibility in life now, and enter each of our lives more fully and wholeheartedly, perhaps, if I could even say, more wildly now, without delay, gifting ourselves perhaps with a fearlessness and a love that we never ever thought possible and even imagined that we could consider for ourselves. And all it takes, and I don't say this lightly, is the willingness and the courage, the passion, the resolve, the kindness to direction our hearts and minds to what is true now, here, always. And for me, meditation is a practice of redirectioning our minds to what is true here, now, and always. And it will be the thread that will weave its way through our day here together. And I'd like to ask if in beginning this day we could spend a while in meditation together. I know that there are people here that have much more experience in meditation than I do and that there are people that have very little understanding of meditation. So I will offer some abbreviated instructions. So if you can take a position that is comfortable for you, you're very welcome if you wish to close your eyes. It's certainly not imperative. Always, always helpful to have your posture as perpendicular and as erect as possible. You may want to imagine a string pulling up the back of the head, extending up into the sky, elongating the spine, dipping the chin a little forward towards the chest. Being as comfortable as possible. I invite you to take a few deep, relaxing breaths and allow yourself as much as possible to arrive here fully together now. And to the extent possible, allowing the life that all of us left out there to slip from us and be as fully present together here now as is possible for you.
being aware of the experience of the body, the feeling of pressure at the buttocks, the knees, the hands resting on the legs. Just feeling the pressure, the warmth perhaps. And then as you feel ready, shifting the awareness to the experience of breathing. Bringing mindfulness, awareness, bare attention to the experience of the changing sensations of the breath as it enters, as it leaves your body. Now, of course, thoughts will come and go and sounds and such like will call the attention from the breathing. Just gently cultivating that willingness to return to the truth of the moment, the experience of breathing for now. The willingness to begin again and again is the heart of the meditation practice. without judging, without commenting, without changing the experience of breathing in any way, allowing, if you will, the body to breathe itself, having presence with the changing sensations of the breath. One in-breath, one out-breath.
wherever it is that you experience the breathing most distinctly, allow the awareness to rest at that place. Could be the tip of the nose, the rising, falling of the abdomen, the movement of the chest. beginning to refine the awareness, perhaps. Having presence with the beginning, the middle, the end of the in-breath. The birth, the life, the death of the out-breath. Life goes from breath to breath.
if the mind wanders, gently returning to the experience of the breath entering and leaving the body. Changing sensations arising, passing away. Life hanging on one breath at a time.
dying to the in-breath, dying to the out-breath, allowing the changing sensations of the experience of breathing to appear and disappear, bringing an awareness without judging, commenting, changing, allowing the truth to manifest moment to moment, rising, passing away. last few minutes of this meditation together.
life in death, death in life. Take each breath as if it were your last. This is a poem by E. E. Cummings in closing this meditation. I thank you, God, for most this amazing day, for the leaping greenly spirits of trees and the blue true dream of sky and for everything which is natural, which is infinite, which is yes. I who have died am alive again today. And this is the sun's birthday. This is the birthday of life and of love and swings and the gay great happening illimitably earth. How should tasting, touching, hearing, seeing, breathing any lifted from the know of all knowing, human merely being doubt unimaginable you. Now the ears of my ears awake, and now the eyes of my eyes are opened. So, 
I would like to ask you a question. Is anybody, is everybody else a little warm in here? May we please open the window? Thank you. I've got two layers to go. So in case any of you were a little confused by Chris's introduction concerning mealtimes, <laughs> is there anybody? Uh, Chris, you said we'll be eating at 1 and we'll be meeting again at 1.30. Oh, 2.30. <laughs> oh, we'll be meeting at 2.30. Um, Now, the one thing you might not know is that uh, in a previous part of my life, I was a certified public accountant. So, if you were to give me a practice like that. <laughs> Spiritual seekers, people who like us are concerned with the issues of life and love and of living fully. Certainly, I feel today that I'm in community with the hundred or so men and women up on the hill who've just committed themselves to three months of silence and inwardness together. I was up there this morning with them. What an incredible thing they're doing. We're in community with them and with all human beings who care, even those who pass. We're in community today with the Buddha. We are sharing his teachings with Christ, with Gandhi, with Martin Luther King. And if I might say even more inclusively, we're in community with all human beings, maybe particularly with those who do not have the privilege of questioning life as we do today, whose life is so perhaps circumscribed by suffering and deprivation that they're unable to look at themselves in the context that we've been gifted with today. And so I'd like to ask as a way of acknowledging one another, of acknowledging our community, of honoring the courage and sacrifice that has been a part of making it possible for many of us to be here today. I'd like to invite you, if we wish, if we could just go around the room and acknowledge one another. If you feel f comfortable, you may want to mention your first name. You may want to just nod or bow or smile. Feel free to do nothing. I'd like to invite you, if we wish, if we could just go around the room and acknowledge one another. If you feel f comfortable, you may want to mention your first name. You may want to just nod or bow or smile. Feel free to do nothing.
feel it's important for many reasons. One is to remind ourselves that we are not alone. It is so easy when dealing with issues like the one that we're going to be looking at today to feel isolated and alone and lonely. And I certainly need every opportunity to remember that this is not a journey I always have to make on our own. So in introducing ourselves, we are contradicting any part of us that might feel isolated and disconnected. Also, I'm going to ask that the day unfold in silence today. What this means is that certainly here in the hall, when there's dialogue and discussion, of which there'll be much, that of course doesn't apply. But outside of here, in the tea time, over lunch, I'd like to ask that at least in the area surrounding the buildings, if you, if you would maintain the silence during the eating of lunch also. And then if there is a conversation that needs to happen, of course, feel free to have it, but some distance from the building so that those of us who wish to be together in silent community today have an opportunity to do that. And the reason is really very simple. We're looking at some potentially difficult and complicated stuff together. And it's so usual in our world to distract ourselves from that. So this is a time just to be perhaps with places that feel sacred, maybe a little tender, in silence, but together, held by one another. It's a chance also for us to be seen by all the rest of us who have chosen to be here today with you. So I will begin, maybe we could go around this way, Gavin. Carol. And Joe. Yeah. John. Carolyn. And if y'all could, I, I have a friend that's um, actively dying. Um, a week and a half ago, she was still talking about the rest of the office and working. anybody would like to evoke the presence of anyone out loud, bring them to our circle, this would be a great opportunity to do that. Thank you for reminding us, Carol. Margaret.
In family, in community, I feel that it is important as we are gathered here today, as we are a part of our communities, wherever it is that we've come from, it is important that we venture out, that we love boldly, wildly perhaps, often way beyond the embrace of our friends, our family, our community, to places where we perhaps stumble, where we fall, where we come flat on our face at times, places where we soar, where we triumph, where we unfurl and spread our wings. And it feels terribly important that we come back to our community, our family, our friends, and tell our stories. Learn from one another as fellow travelers. Cheer one another on in that way and hopefully we listen that carefully to one another's story that we don't make the same mistake that others have made that have gone before us. So I'm here back at the study center after three years. I'd like to introduce myself and tell a little of my story here today by way of introduction. I've certainly stumbled, I've fallen, I've come flat on my face many, many times. I've dusted myself off as best I can and got up and I'm reporting back here today. I'm here to sing my song, if you will, as distinctly as I hear it these days. As I fly in the face of my own death as best I can a death that seems to whisper really clearly at times through the nuances of this crazy life of mine. I also would like to say that I'm giving a lot of energy and time to, uh, uh, to a manuscript which I'm, I'm writing, which I hope and pray will someday be a helpful and useful book. I've titled this, this uh, this project, Beyond My Wildest Dreams. And it's essentially a celebration of this meditation that I am so grateful to have as an <coughs> intimate part of this life. It's also a memoir of my life and the spiritual journey. I trust it will be a careful 
and joyful and accurate and respectful account <coughs> of the teachings of the Buddha and other teachings as they've come alive and blessed my life so much. So far it is full of mischief, it's a lot of fun, it's a difficult project. I'm grateful to be doing it and I'd like to read a little bit from time to time from that manuscript today. I welcome any feedback after today ends that you might have. I need all the encouragement I can get. So if you see me reading from something, I'm not going to acknowledge it every time. That's actually what I'm reading from. There are certain things that I think I can actually say better uh, given what's gone into this writing. So as I said, I'd like to begin by telling you uh, a few stories, both uh, stories of the Buddha, stories from my own life, and then, as I say, following our tea, we'll come back together for um, our final session, as they call it, before lunch. And I had a peek in the kitchen, for those of you that are concerned, <laughs> before we began, and what's happening in the kitchen seems miraculous. So <laughs> you can be sure we're going to be treated well and cared for well uh, at one o'clock. There's a story that I told in my book, In the Lap of the Buddha, which to my great surprise I feel called again and again to retell. It's, it's so central and it feels particularly central to our day together. So I'd like to retell that story. Um, Among the tribes in Africa where I was born and where I grew up, there's this tradition that shortly after her marriage, the young wife leaves the hustle and bustle of her village and goes off to a quiet place. She perhaps finds a spot in the long, tall grass or a shady place under a tree, a rock beside a river. And she goes there and she listens. She listens deeply until she hears the song of her first child that has yet even to be conceived. She perhaps listens for the chords, the strains, the melody of that song. And when she hears it, when she knows it well, she goes back to the village and she teaches it to her husband. And it's the song that accompanies their lovemaking when the child is conceived. And it's the song that the midwives sing around the bed of the birthing mother. It's sung when she holds that child to her breast for the first time and feeds it. And it's a song that the father sings, perhaps, when he cradles that child on his lap after work, the end of the day, when together they sit and watch the magnificent <coughs> African sun setting over the mountains. It's sung on the birthdays of the child. It's sung on all the important moments, the rites of passage into adolescence, into, into puberty, adulthood. It's sung with the song of the spouse on the wedding day of, of both children and sung right through the life up until the final times it's sung when the old man or old woman is dying. And then for the very last time it's sung when the body is lowered into the grave and the ground is thrown on the coffin. It was on a misty mountain top in the valley of a thousand hills in Zululand, South Africa, 
that I was introduced to the meditation practice in 1981 near the village of Ikopo. I'll have to have a sip of water. I speak Zulu, but that the Nopo, Ikopo. Uh, and it was there that I met Joseph Goldstein. He flew from this mountain to that mountain. And, and I, I've never been able to say that before. <laughs> Welcome. I'm sorry. Oh, I'm so happy that you've come. <laughs> Of course. <laughs> and for me, meditation practice has, over these last 17, 18 years, been my own way of beginning to remember my own song that I long, long forgot. I lived at that meditation center for a year after that. And when I was diagnosed with AIDS nine years later, it felt so urgent to me that I hear my song as clearly and distinctly as I possibly could as soon as possible. For me, my song whispers and calls me to know who I am beyond all the self-images I have of myself and the self-images that others have of me. Who am I beyond the labels, the persona, the expectations I have of myself? Who am I beyond Gavin, the certified public accountant, Gavin, the person with AIDS, Gavin, the white South African, Gavin, the uh, Buddhist meditation teacher, or Gavin, the author, Gavin, the gay man? Within the melody of my song, I, I hear a promise of true love, of real happiness and of that peace which passeth all understanding, way beyond the words and ideas I have of what these things might mean for me. Who am I beyond the drama and catastrophe of living with AIDS? I want so much to live an honest and authentic life that is true to the emergence of my son which feels as though at long last it's beginning to come forward from behind the clouds of forgetfulness that have kept it hidden for such a long time. A few years ago, in fact, soon after my last time here at the study center teaching, I fell very ill and was admitted to hospital in Northampton. It was at the time that In the Lap of the Buddha was published. My temperature was 106.7 degrees and uh, my friends and uh, some of my doctors really thought that I was checking out at the time. Apparently when your temperature gets that high uh, you, you can die or you can at least have irreparable brain damage. I'm still as crazy as I ever was. <laughs> and I'm so grateful for that. <laughs> I was really sick, I dropped 25 pounds, I was drenched in sweats night and day, and my mind was really dull and my body was exhausted. And in the middle of all of this, one night, I awoke from this nightmare with a jolt and my mind was crystal clear, it was such a contrast from where I'd been those days before. And surrounding me in every direction was a deep, 
comforting velvet blackness. And below me and stretching way ahead into the distance was what seemed to be like a river of sort of salmon apricot colored rose petals stretching way ahead of me. The petals seemed to shimmer and glow in contrast to the deep black that enveloped this whole experience. I was, of course, sitting cross-legged on this river, dead still, <laughs> a few inches above the surface of the river. I don't know where I got that idea from because it's such a long time since I was able to sit cross-legged, but I was in my dream. And I skimmed the surface of this river as I slowly moved forward. At the point where the light disappeared, way, way in the distance, a bright white light shone back at me. And the closer I approached this light, the clearer I felt its impact. This white light embraced me with an experience of limitless, full and absolute, unconditional love, quite unlike anything I'd ever experienced before. And the closer I got to this light, the deeper was the sense of coming home. I felt bathed and saturated and infused in the experience of that love and that light. A feeling of safety and protection embraced me as I reached out to the light ahead of me and as I moved towards it and as it reached out and called me home. My heart erupted with a joy that I can never forget as I remembered again this great love that I'd long forgotten. And then at this point my mind got really busy. I remember thinking, this is so cool. <laughs> this is far out, you know. So I'm dying, I mean, this is clear. And, you know, it's all exquisitely beautiful, you know. The color was terrific. And, and I remember thinking, you know, um, I haven't suffered like I might have suffered, you know, I've, I've, as so many of my friends who'd, who'd, who'd gone through this experience. I remember even feeling uh, a glimmer of self-satisfaction, you know, like, you know, I've done all those retreats at IMS and, you know, it's paying off. I'm sort of cashing in my check. It was so horrible, you know. And it was like instantly I did this 90 degree turn, like into the blackness, boom. And my eyes opened and I was in the hospital bed and there was all this life support equipment around me and there were nurses around the bed and one was holding my pulse, the other one was like thinking there was a crisis, you know. And the crisis was over, I was back, my fever broke and that was the end of that particular episode. But my overwhelming memory of that night was of the loving light. I really have no idea what happened. It doesn't really feel important for me to explain it to myself. But what I'm left with these days is an unshakable knowing that the movement towards death for me in some unfathomable and mysterious way is a movement to a profound and boundless love, long, long forgotten. And at any time, if I remember, and I wish I could remember it more often, I'm able to evoke the joy 
and the relief and the gladness I felt that night in hospital. For me, the fear of death, and I don't for one moment suggest that there is no fear, is diluted by the indelible impression left by this experience. More than ever, death these days feels like an illusion. It feels like a short step, really, from one garden to another, a return to a love long, long forgotten. And particularly since that night, what increasingly defines my life these days is an unquenchable thirst to know the deepest and most unconditionable love possible within the fire, the drama, and the complexity of my life now. I believe it is my birthright, and if I might be bold enough to say, the birthright of all of us, to know this love experience both within us and outside of us, along with and not defined by the circumstances in which I and we live. These days, the lens through which I live my life is steadily shifting from darkness into light as I begin to remember the strains of my song once more. And the words of that song remind me that who I am fundamentally is simply a great and pure love that I long forgot. And my song reminds me to remember that love. That it has always been there, it's been hidden, it's been denied, it's been avoided, swamped by the circumstances of my life, smothered by fear and confusion as they blow through, but blessedly always ready to return to the light of day. Gone is what feels to me to be the absurd notion that this love needs to be found outside of myself, that needs to be madly cultivated or accumulated. My song was simply there. I just forgot, and now I am beginning to remember again. And for me, the highest expression of love is awareness. To be fully present with oneself and with another is for me the truest kind of love. The practice of meditation, mindfulness, is, I believe, for me, a practice of love. Unconscious love is an oxymoron, really. It seems like it's an impossibility. To be awake is to love. To be awake fully is to love fully. We forget, we remember, as simple as returning to the experience of the changing sensations of the breath. The Buddha lived uh, two and a half thousand years ago, and he was born into the ruling royal family of the Shakyan tribes. 
which is a tribes on the foothills of the Himalayan mountains in northern India. I'm sure, I know some of you have been to Asia in what is now Nepal. I've not visited Asia. And when the queen fell pregnant at the time, there was great celebration in the kingdom. And they invited, as was customary, 64 holy guys to the, to, to the <laughs> palace to, to give their sense of what was going to happening. And they portended great things, you know. They collectively decided that the child to be born was going to be a boy and that he was going to be one of two things. He was going to either be a great uh, conqueror of lands, a great leader, a great a political... Um, yeah, please open and close the windows. We sure going from one to the other, yeah. <laughs> that he, he, he would either be a great conqueror and, and heir to the throne or else he was going to be a great spiritual leader. Now, the king had great ambitions for his child, and so he was perturbed about this. He was going to have none of this airy-fairy spiritual stuff. And when the child was born, and uh, uh, a couple of weeks, apparently, after his birth, a wandering ascetic visited the kingdom. His name was Asita, and uh, he came to bless the child and holding this baby, uh, Siddhartha, he wept profusely and the king said to him, why are you weeping? And he said, I'm weeping because this child is going to be a Buddha. He's going to be fully enlightened and I'm weeping because I am not going to be here. I'm not going to be alive to hear his teaching. And he said, I'm so sad. The king was, of course, distraught by this information. And so he decided what he was going to do was he was going to bring this child up in such luxury and abundance that there would be no reason for him to question life, to, to, uh, to think that life was anything but an endless succession of joys and delights. And so that's what happened. This boy grew up into adulthood. There are these great accounts of all these gardeners moving through the gardens before he woke up, taking all the dead flowers out and replanting so that when he got up and opened the windows, there was just this blossoming and uh, beauty all around. He was protected in every way. As soon as people started getting old, they were removed. He had a concubine for his pleasure. The very best foods were served him, and it was always food that had been tested and tasted beforehand so that nothing could upset him. He was pampered and he was spoiled and he had everything he wanted. And yet he wanted to go outside of the palace. And so he told his father he wanted to go to a nearby flower grove. So what his father said was he arranged that the road to the flower grove was going to be populated only with the youngest and most beautiful people strewing flowers and garlands and music and all of that along the road. So off he goes in his, in his chariot, with his charioteer, to the flower grove. And on the way, as it said in the mythology, one of the heavenly messengers came to him in the form of an old person and stepped out of all the youth and beauty there and stood before 
Siddhartha as he walked by and he was aghast and he looked down and he said to his charioteer, he said, what on earth is that? And the guy said, it's an old person. And he said, you know, everybody that is born gets old. And he said, I had no idea. So apparently he went back to the kingdom and tried a couple of days later to get to the flower grove and this time the heavenly messenger manifested as a dying person. And again, he was really shocked. And the charioteer said to him again, you know, people get sick. You know, it's the nature of the body. It deteriorates, gets old. And he went back and tried again. And on the last time, uh, there was a corpse manifested. And he saw the corpse. And he was told, yeah, everybody that's born dies. There's no getting away from it. And then there was a final manifestation, according to some stories. Some stories that say a mendicant stepped out. Whoever stepped out, which is a person who shaved his or her head and had taken up the holy life, had renounced all worldly possessions and gone in search of truth. And there was great light that, that emanated from this being. And Stardew was so touched that he decided there and then that what he was going to do was relinquish everything he had, step out of his royal privileged life and go in search of truth. It felt like his bubble had been burst and that was the beginning of his odyssey, his uh, spiritual journey. When I returned from Ikopo in Zululand to the United States, I returned to my life in New York City and I returned to my apartment on the 32nd floor overlooking the Empire State Building and the Statue of Liberty. I had the river next to the apartment. I was, had a successful career, a prodigious bank account at the time. I uh, had a house out on Fire Island with a whole lot of other guys and we used to go there for weekends, have a great time, used to go to Studio 54 often. It was, it was fun. Uh, I tried to return to my, to my job on Fifth Avenue and it was so difficult because I felt fundamentally and deeply at odds with the life I'd left behind a year before. And what I decided to do, in spite of the fact that I was the envy of my friends and the pride and joy of my parents, it seemed like what I most wanted to do was to go deeper into myself and know myself a little better and it felt like my heavenly messages had come to me in Ikopo without even knowing it. And so what I did was I gifted my brother who'd emigrated to Canada all my possessions, which included uh, treasures from Iran where I'd lived for four years and Europe and Africa and resolved to go into a monastery, a Burmese forest monastery. And it was prior to, to dispossessing myself of everything, that I had one last wild, fateful fling. And it was during that time that I was infected with AIDS. And so, right from the very beginning, when I entered this monastery, long before we even knew there was a virus, long before the word AIDS had entered our vocabulary, long before we knew about safer sex, there was this thing called GRID at the time, which was Gay-Related Immune Disorder, 
We knew there was something going on that was killing people and making people sick, but we had no idea exactly what was happening. And so all the while, from the very beginning of my journey, the virus and my body were locked in a deadly combat with one another. stayed at the monastery for almost a year and I'll be speaking more about that this afternoon because it was my privilege while at that monastery to do a number of death awareness practices and it feels more appropriate to share those with you this afternoon and perhaps spend a little time with them and it was fortuitous obviously that I, I did them and then I decided to come here to IMS and begin the fall retreat in 1982 Almost exactly 15 years ago, I flew over here and reconnected with Joseph Goldstein. It was, it was wonderful to see him again. And it was during that retreat that I had my first experience of deep, sustained, quiet, silent meditation in an environment probably unlike anywhere else in the world where people can come together and be quiet and be supported in a wholehearted way and that's just up the hill here. I love walking in the rain and when the fall rains came and everyone rushed indoors I headed out into the downpour and splashed my way down to the lake. Just over here there's a loop. I'm sure some of you know that lake. At this time the awareness was crisp and clear. Beside the water there was a presence with the sound of every raindrop falling around me. Sitting at the lakeside, watching the myriad circles within circles on the surface of the water, hearing the patter of the downfall, I slipped into a microscopic awareness of all the sounds, sights and sensations and the concurrent knowing of every one of them. I became aware for the first time of consciousness. Consciousness is the knowing faculty of mind. In every mind moment, there is an object arising at the sense door and the knowing of it. There is a sound in the knowing of it, a sight in the knowing of it. Beside the lake I experience both the sounds and the sight and the knowing of it. Oh, I experience the sounds and the sights and the knowing of each one. Simultaneous, vivid, concurrent, relentless. An inner sense of vacancy and emptiness deepened and broadened. As I remained beside the water, Gavin was nowhere in the vicinity. There was no personal experience of seeing, doing, listening, thinking. Purely empty phenomena arising, vanishing, and a knowing of every one of them. As I returned later to the meditation center, sodden, shaken, filled with faith and joy, I knew beyond doubt that at last I was on my way home. Although I had no idea what lay ahead, I no longer felt like the last and bewildered boy I once was. I returned to the building that was already becoming the most important spiritual home I'd ever had. My heart overflowed with gratitude for the sense of possibility that permeated my life now. One of the most vivid memories of that retreat was sitting in the back of the hall and 
looking over the heads of the people in front of me and just feeling the incredible sense of love that I felt for all these people whose names I didn't even know. It was wonderful to experience a love that was completely outside the context of words and the ways I was so used to connecting. After that retreat, I moved to Boston. I established a little financial practice there and earned enough money to support myself doing more and more retreats at IMS. I did about eight or nine long retreats. During those years, particularly in the late 1980s, many, many of my friends from all over the world were beginning to get really sick and die of AIDS. By 1988, I'd lost upwards of 40 friends to AIDS. I felt like there was a holocaust happening around me. And living in Cambridge and being very friendly with Larry Rosenberg, I was speaking to him of this grief and loss that just felt so ever-present for me. And he suggested that I begin using some Buddhist reflections and contemplations on death, classical ones that the Buddha taught and that has been taught for two and a half thousand years, as a way of finding some sort of peace and stability with the amount of suffering I was feeling, all related to my friends who were dying. It was a time when it was really hard for me to even call a friend who I had not heard from for a couple of weeks because I just had no idea what was going on. Mount Auburn Cemetery in Cambridge is one of the most beautiful places in the world. In the springtime after the long cold winter, it is transformed into a dazzling spectacle of color and joy as trees and flowers erupt into a kaleidoscope of blossoms in every corner of the place. Tombs, mausoleums, funeral stones, obelisks, ponds, hills, valleys, and towers offer a million little places to hide and nap and meditate. It was to the cemetery that I most often took my reflections. There I repeated the words while at the same time appreciating the irrefutable evidence around me of so many people who, like me, had once lived and were now dead and gone. When the first fall frost came to the cemetery, it seemed almost impossible that a few weeks earlier the place had been so vibrantly colorful and alive. Walking among the tombstones in the gray and chill of approaching winter, life felt so fleeting, so unreliable and dearly precious. Huddled in a sunny corner of the cemetery, carefully out of sight of the patrolling groundsman, I would rest in the increasing sense of fragility that held me. Life now felt so insecure, so utterly precious, and a blessing beyond measure. In 1989, I got a phone call from South Africa. Two of my very closest friends there were dying of AIDS. Roy was a man who was my lover for a number of years, way, way back. And Michael was a mentor and very close friend. So I flew back to South Africa. And when I called from Smith Airport in Johannesburg, I called the hospital, I discovered that Roy had just died. So I never got to say goodbye to Roy. And Michael was very sick. 
who was covered when I met him after driving to his home from the airport in lesions from the top of his head down to his toes. It was shattering and very sad. And I spent several weeks with him and then went down to the coast to be with my mom and dad who live in Durban, which is a town on the Indian Ocean, very beautiful tropical place. Believe it or not, I spoke to my mom yesterday who was here for the, for the summer and uh, uh, she uh, said to me that uh, it's the beginning of spring there. Mm-hmm. It's so beautiful. Mm-hmm. Think spring. <laughs> 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 One evening soon after I arrived in Durban, my father left for bed immediately after the evening meal. He had not felt well at the dinner table and had complained of a pain in his stomach and chest. Adelaide and I, Adelaide's my mother, settled down to an evening of cards in the living room. We heard his snoring from the bedroom as we sipped tea, chatted and enjoyed our game together. Sometime later a ghastly sound broke through our reverie and we rushed to the bedroom. Ron was sitting up in bed, his eyes rolled up to the ceiling and they were white and quivering. His body shook wildly as he flailed and beat his chest. It was an awful sight. I immediately called the doctor. Adelaide and I moved to either side of the bed and held him, whispered words of encouragement to him, and helped steady his shaking body. His pain was clearly enormous. Adelaide forced two of Ron's emergency heart pills down his throat, but this was to no avail. A huge spasm shook him, his back arched, and he slumped back on Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.